Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. In 2018, Zach Melamed was living the millennial dream with a job at Facebook. But after coming home from a trip to Auschwitz to images of internment camps on the Mexican border, he decided he could no longer sit on the sidelines and he needed to do something that felt more purposeful. Since then, he has founded The Next 50, a group focused on helping young people harness their grassroots political powers through political giving. Zach and I discuss how political giving and proximity to power can engage young voters in the political process, how Democrats need to catch up to the GOP in cultivating young voters, and the importance of supporting young candidates in down-ballot races. Honestly, I left our conversation thinking that our future's in good hands. If you want to feel hopeful about the next generation and the future of our country as well, this episode's for you. And now, here's my conversation with Zach Malamed. Zach Malamed, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thanks so much for having me, Nancy. So I'd love to start by you telling me a little bit about The Next 50. What is it and why did you start it? Trace back to the, when I graduated from college, I actually moved out to the Bay Area, had the privilege of working for a philanthropist, and in the wake of Trump's election, was able to travel to over 34 communities in 22 states. And the, the purpose of that work was actually to explore what it would be like to rethink the American public high school. And as I was able to travel to these communities, whether they be post-industrial, suburban, urban, rural, you name it, I started to recognize that after having worked in education for, at the time, close to seven years, every social issue intersects in the school or in the classroom. We talk about immigration. You had students whose parents are undocumented, and they carry that burden into the classroom every day. You talk about the lack of healthcare access. You want to talk about family violence or the fact that one in 10 students in New York City come to school homeless every day. I think over three in 10 come to school hungry. And so I started to think about the ways in which I personally could have an impact. And I started to gravitate more and more towards politics. And in that process, thought about moving back to New York, my hometown, to get more involved, but actually had the opportunity to go work at Facebook to launch their youth leadership and civic education programming. And only a week into the job, I had a pre-planned trip with my grandmother and my sister to go visit Auschwitz and Israel. And I vividly remember coming back to the office, and there are monitors around the office in Facebook displaying the news of the day, often CNN or maybe even ESPN. But that day, I remember seeing every monitor displaying images of children getting separated from their families and detained at the border. And truthfully said to myself, WTF am I doing at Facebook right now? I had a great opportunity to do incredible work with extraordinary people. But that began my personal journey to explore how I could deepen my political engagement So fast forward to January of 2019, the presidential cycle is starting to pick up or get started, I should say. And I was invited to an exploratory committee event for one of the candidates running for office, actually by a middle school teacher of mine. And after the event, they asked me, would you be interested in hosting a young professionals fundraiser for the candidate? And I said, yeah, definitely. I really like this candidate, was really interested. But I went home and I thought to myself, it might be easier to actually organize for this candidate if I host all of the candidates, because there'd be so many amazing candidates running. 
not really having any prior relationship with any of the campaigns and ended up blindly reaching out to all of them. And the first candidate to respond was then a little known mayor from South Bend, Indiana, before anyone knew who Mayor Pete Buttigieg was. And we had the privilege of hosting him to a room of over 100 people. And at the time, because he was running as a candidate who no one really knew, we raised over $10,000. It was a phenomenal event for a low profile candidate. And fast forward, we've hosted over 70 events for 18 presidential candidates, dozens down ballot. We've actually done this across five cities and raised over $1.4 million in the process. And so you asked, what's the next 50? Well, the next 50, actually, we didn't start the next 50 with the intention of doing that. The next 50 was born out of that experience. The idea behind the next 50 is that 50 years ago, conservatives came up with a plan to win. And by all measures, they've won. That plan is often referenced as the Powell Memo, a doctrine written by Lewis Powell, who ended up becoming an associate Supreme Court justice about how we could preserve our capitalist society. Because flashback to the 1960s, and you had these social movements on college campuses, the anti-war movement, and these business leaders and conservative leaders were really worried that the institutions as they knew it would start to unravel. Well, anyway, the plans worked. It worked because in large part, they've invested in developing young people, young talent. They've invested in their ideas through think tanks, and they've invested in down-ballot races really successfully. And so what we really thought as an organization in the next 50, we wanted to make politics more accessible to young people. And we recognized that political giving was a huge part of the political engagement experience that was missing or wasn't expected of young people. Young people are asked to march on doors. They're asked to march in the streets. They're asked to vote, but they're never asked to give their dollar, even just a dollar. You do not have to give $1,000. You don't have to give $2,800. $1 in mass makes a difference. Think about the way that unions built grassroots power for our parents' generation and the generation before that and still have that today. Well, if we invest $1 in candidates that represent our values and interests, that can go a long way. And so the next 50 is really focused on how do we help young people harness their grassroots political power and build that power through proximity with candidates that comes with political giving. And so the last thing I'll say is as a result of this experience, we're actually now going to be the first to hear, really, we're going to be launching a pack to invest in young candidates who we define as under 45, representative of the diversity of their communities, and also primarily running in swing districts, in swing states, and those that we want to turn blue. Because we believe that young people should not just be invested in one election cycle, they should be invested in the long term. And how exciting is it to invest in that 32-year-old candidate who you're going to be able to grow old with and invest in, but also build community and better our society together? build a democracy that's representative of and looks like the communities that we live in today. So we're really excited about that. And it's been an incredible journey to go from a person who is tangentially involved in politics to someone who is now directly involved in it, inspired by or in spite of the moment that we're in. Wow, that is an incredible story. And actually, you just ticked off so many of my questions and that one answer. So thank you. We're going to unpack that a little more slowly. So the next 50 refers to the next 50 years, basically. Got it. Got it. Great name. So let's talk about your events. You started with presidential candidates. That's a pretty high level start. I know that often these events have pretty high asks, at least for people who are my age. Were they willing to come for less for you guys? I mean, what got them there? was the 2020 cycle. And the 2020 cycle did not look like the 2016 cycle where Hillary Clinton was more or less the presumptive nominee from early on, or at least the only one who was really raising money through events across the country. 
And so when you go from having really one candidate who's raising that money to 27 candidates who are raising that money, there's a smaller pool of money for each of those candidates, or maybe the smaller slice of the pool for the candidates to pull from. And so when the candidates come to town, whether it be in San Francisco, New York, Boston, LA, they often have, let's say, 8 to 9.30 p.m. hour full, but they don't quite have the happy hour time full in their schedules, especially when there were, again, 27 candidates running for president and not everyone was going to host every candidate. Well, I guess we were naive to think that we could, maybe not so naive because we did. We hosted 18 presidential candidates as they came to town. And they recognized that, yeah, they were not going to raise the same at our events, but they were going to engage with more people. And one of the phenomenal things I think about our events was that for most events, the minimum was $25 to attend. And there were teachers and other young people who would reach out to us and say, look, we can't afford that level, but we would always let people in for free. And we continue to do that to this day. It's important that we make our environments as accessible as possible. And oftentimes what ends up happening is the people who don't pay to attend the event at the onset actually end up paying afterwards because they were so inspired and become so invested in that candidate. And whether or not they end up donating, we know that people who show up in those spaces are more likely to invest their time in those candidates down the road. I remember actually asking Senator Kamala Harris when she came to our event or her staff, what else can we do beyond raise money? We had a very successful event. It was right after her a big debate performance. Over 300 people showed up and she said, we want your folks to be knocking doors for us in Nevada coming up because we were in San Francisco. And that's the kind of resource that we can provide candidates in addition to money. Let's talk about the people who come to your events. They're young for the most part, right? Age ranges. Usually I define our target demo as 22 to 40, but I think what's exciting to me is seeing young people actually bring their parents to these events too. And then also seeing that some older folks that are outside of that demographic who typically aren't able to attend events that cost 500 to 2,800 to even more to attend, say these are actually the first opportunities we've ever had in our adult lives to attend accessible political events because our events are public. They're not private and often held in a private apartment or exclusive club. They're hosted in public spaces. So in San Francisco, we partnered with a wonderful venue, a civic cafe, Manny's. In Boston, we worked with a wonderful brewery called Democracy Brewing. In Los Angeles, we worked with a healthcare incubator, Scale LA, now known as Scale Health. So these are more or less public spaces that made our events more accessible to the community, not just to young people. But of course, we're always targeting young people because it's important that we build for the next 50 years. I'm going to be really old in 50 years, so you need to look for somebody else. We still want you to come to our events, Nancy. <laughs> yeah. I'll be there. I'll be old too then, by the way. <laughs> You'll have to wheel me in. <laughs> so I've heard Mayor Pete's name. I've heard Kamala Harris's name. I was going to ask you about some of your most notable events. I mean, obviously, you had a lot of presidential candidates. Are there any specific events that really stand out that just felt really successful? Yes, absolutely. Actually, so after COVID hit, we had to move online like everybody. We moved on to Zoom, but we were uniquely prepared for that because we actually helped Mayor Pete's campaign think about doing virtual events on Zoom and other platforms before you needed to do it. So when COVID hit, I was actually reaching out to all these campaigns saying, let's do an event together. Like, what do you have to lose? In fact, as much as there are a lot of people suffering in this economic environment, there are a lot of people who also have jobs who are looking for community right now, who are not spending money on Uber rides, who are not spending money on brunch and concerts. And ultimately, we've learned that we need the right candidates elected to office to address the economic circumstances that we're currently in. And so it would be great to get these hosts supporting these candidates be the first form of community that we're building in this COVID environment. It took a little longer than I would like 
But as a result of that, we've actually been able to host candidates I never would have otherwise imagined us hosting. And one of those is someone that some of your listeners might not be aware of, Desiree Timms. She's running in Ohio's 10th congressional district. She's a friend of mine. I think they worked in the Obama White House together, but Desiree also ended up working for Senator Gillibrand. And Desiree's running in a district that voted for Obama twice and voted for Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown once in 2018. It is labeled as a plus four Republican district, which means on average it leans more Republican, but it's also winnable based on precedent. And Desiree, at the time that we hosted her, had about $40,000 cash on hand, had not been able to secure the endorsements of organizations like Emily's List, the premier group that supports women running for office, or the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, in large part because she, as a Black woman born in Dayton, Ohio, was not born into a fundraising network. And so she couldn't raise the money necessary for these organizations to take her campaign seriously, despite the fact that she's running in a district that, based on recent history, as goes Ohio 10, so goes the state of Ohio. And so in our single event, we raised about 25% of her cash on hand. And of course, as an organization, we don't take credit for this fully. We played a role in Desiree's phenomenal campaign, getting to the point where they ended the quarter with over $300,000 cash on hand. She got Emily's List endorsement. She got the DCCC's endorsement. And what that said to me is being that Desiree was not born into a fundraising network. There are so many other young people across this country who are representative of the diversity of our communities who should be able to run successful campaigns, who should have the resources to run, but we don't invest in them. And so what is more powerful than young people investing in young people? Because I know, and I'll tell you, if Desiree doesn't win the cycle, which let's see what happens. I am willing to bet that people like Desiree are not going to go away if they lose the cycle. She'll be back in 2022, whether she's running for office or leading in her community in another way. So we're investing in the future of these communities, not just in political candidates running for office this cycle. That's what excites me. And that of all the events with all the notable people that we've hosted is the one that really turned the tide for us and made sure that we started to focus on the young people running for office who would really shape the future of our country. Yeah. I mean, you're playing a pivotal role building the talent pipeline. They don't come out of nowhere. You have to start somewhere. Totally. And Desiree is one of the most phenomenal candidates running for office with an incredible story. Just because she wasn't able to raise the money in her first quarter of 2020 doesn't mean that she doesn't deserve the support. In fact, she deserves the endorsement even more as or as much as the next person, because that endorsement is going to be what unlocks or opens the doors for her to run a successful campaign. We're excited to be able to support people like Desiree moving forward. So you said that you like to target candidates and races that tend to have younger, putting aside the presidential candidates, that have younger candidates. Are they always Democrats? They've been Democrats so far. I think our values tend to align with... I'm only asking because something on your website said something like you consider all candidates, I suppose. That's a really great question. It's because we don't believe necessarily that young people identify with the Democratic Party. We believe young people identify with the values of the Democratic Party. We believe that young people identify with the fact that we need to address climate change, that we need health care to be more affordable, that women should have the rights to their own body, etc. Of course, we want to make sure that we have a liberal majority in the Supreme Court. But that doesn't mean that Democrats are the only way to do that. I'll give you actually an example. One of the premier Senate candidates this cycle is Barbara Ballier. Barbara Ballier is running in Kansas. And only two years ago or three years ago or so, she was actually a moderate Republican in Kansas. But she recognized that the Republican Party no longer aligned with her values. And so she decided to switch to the Democratic Party. And now, assuming she wins the primary, which she's the front runner for, 
she'll win that. Another example in the Alaska state legislature. I think there are a handful of members over there who, while they're members of the Republican Party, actually caucus with the Democratic Party. And so not every state looks like the Republican Party or the Democratic Party that you see online or on Twitter or on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. States are unique in their own ways, and we want to be open to supporting people who have the right values, not just people who are members of a specific party. Yeah, that's so interesting. I didn't know actually either of those stories. So it's great not to be so black and white about things. So your events, is there anything you do, given the fact that you're largely catering to, I call them millennials to put them in a bucket. I don't know if that's the right term, but is there anything differently you do than at sort of the stodgy old people events? Like, how do they look? What are they like? So, by the way, I want to give a shout out to Gen Z. They play a big role in our events too. And Gen Z, yeah. <laughs> and anyone else, really, we love making these events accessible. So, when we got started, actually, we made sure that nearly every single one of our events, in addition to the candidate giving their traditional stump speech and the Q and A, that there'd actually be a selfie line. This is something from the very first event with Mayor Pete. We made sure of every single attendee at every single one of our events, no matter how much they paid with maybe one or two event exceptions, we pushed as much as possible to make sure that every single attendee took a selfie with the candidate. And I remember, I think Andrew Yang ended up staying over an hour past the event because so many people got in line to take a selfie with him. So yeah, I mean, Better Our Work, everyone was sweating. They were schwitzing in the room until Better Our Work left, but he made sure he took a picture with everybody. And I know Elizabeth Warren popularized this and made it known, but I actually remember reading an article about Hillary Clinton's campaign and the value that she placed on taking pictures with people on the rope line at her events. At the beginning of the 2020 cycle, I remember calling up Elizabeth Warren's campaign, the first campaign I spoke with, and I said, we need to make sure that at these events, candidates are taking pictures with every young person that attends. And she took that to a whole other level. I mean, thousands of people at every event. I think what that really signals is the importance of that proximity. When you take that selfie, you have the opportunity to ask that question. I will say though, I've really appreciated the online environments where there's no opportunity for selfies because we really then as young people engage in the substantive conversation with these candidates running for office. So I think the selfie line definitely brought a unique millennial or Gen Z angle to it. But I also love when young people are asking questions unique to their generation too. And we 100%. Kind of well, first of all, two things to say on that. Hillary Clinton, yes, but that was for a certain dollar amount. So what you're doing is completely different. And the other point I have to make is that makes so much sense for your generation to be doing these selfies. Honestly, that fills me with dread. I hate the idea of selfie, <laughs> but my children are so brilliant at it and that's their favorite thing to do. So I think that's a fantastic idea. You know what was amazing though? It was seeing actually at other events that these candidates would go to later at night that you would have to pay a certain price point to get a picture with those candidates. When all of our attendees who definitely paid less than those people who went to the event later got a picture with the candidates. And what that does is it internalizes for young people what they should expect of their candidates as they build their relationship with those people. It's about the proximity. It really is about holding people accountable, asking them the tough questions. There were a lot of tough climate questions, I remember, that young people asked of the candidates that we hosted. But they also learned about the environments and opportunities they would have to ask those questions in. That's not to say that political giving is the only way to do that, but it is a significant avenue to do that, that young people aren't taught to engage in. And I'd like to think that the next 50 is playing a role in getting young people to think about that power of political giving, much like Bernie Sanders and AOC through their grassroots online fundraising programs have done that as well. 
I think proximity means also, I mean, you may not ask the tough question, but you've seen that person in person. And that is really powerful. I think people don't realize how much impact that has. And suddenly you're invested in them. You may be connected, maybe on the selfie line, or maybe just hearing how they responded or getting a real sense of their authenticity that can't be communicated via I don't know, watching a debate or seeing them speak on Facebook or whatever. Totally. It humanizes them. Yeah, exactly. And suddenly you're invested. You didn't even think you would be. You're like, hey, I'll go check this guy out. And suddenly you're invested in the race. There's something you get by engaging with a candidate in person that you don't see on a TV interview or on the debate stage. Like Cory Booker, listening to him speak. I mean, it's so captivating. But then also I'll say Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris and Better work are two of the greatest retail politicians I've ever met. They will personalize their engagement with every single individual where you really feel like they're talking to you and not just to another voter. Absolutely. I've never seen Kamala Harris in person. I look forward to that day, but I have seen Beto O'Rourke. And once you see him, you're just all in. And same with Cory Booker. He's incredibly engaging. Totally. And when you get to see him in person, and obviously he's You see him on the Judiciary Committee and all that, but just seeing them as real people speaking. I mean, I think you touched on this a little bit, but of course, we know why political giving is important for the candidate, but why it's important for the donor. It's now, I guess, the act of giving gets you the proximity, but what is it about giving that dollar that makes a difference for your members or donors? I think if you look at the top recipients of Act Blue donations over the past quarter, You look at candidates like Jamie Harrison, you see Joe Biden, you see Nancy Pelosi, you see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. These are candidates that have inspired people. We see Amy McGrath, by the way, but they aren't necessarily the most strategic places to give your money, either because we have less of a chance of winning those places or B, because they're definitely going to win anyway. So when you have less money to spend, why are you investing that valuable dollar in those candidates? And so as a young person, what we want to make sure that they understand is like when you're giving your money, you should give to the places where you can have the highest impact. So for example, in the coming weeks, we're looking at hosting an event that's focused on North Carolina's 8th Congressional District. It's a district that folks in North Carolina have described to me as the most reliably unreliable Democratic district in the state. For those who don't know, North Carolina by Supreme Court mandate was recently redistricted. So it's actually a newish district. But that district is also the one with the most competitive congressional race this cycle in North Carolina. It also is the district that has, I believe, up to six seats that are up for grabs in the state legislature, four of which could be Democratic pickup opportunities. And so we're planning to host an event with a congressional candidate and two of those candidates running at the state legislature level in that district who can help us win the state legislature in North Carolina. What we should also be aware of when we're investing in that district, because it's a nested district, as I would call it, is that there's also an attorney general's race in North Carolina this cycle. There's also a Senate race, a key Senate race with Cal Cunningham this cycle. Josh Stein's the attorney general candidate. And then there's a gubernatorial race with Governor Roy Cooper. And of course, there's Joe Biden. So there is so much at stake in North Carolina's eighth congressional district. And we want young people thinking about that. We want young people thinking about where is my money going to have the greatest impact? Where is it going to go the farthest? I know that on your website, you have a donor advisory tool. And is that how that works? Do you point people in the direction of where you think they're money is best spent? It's a bit of an experiment for us. What we believe is that 
there are really extraordinarily wealthy people in this country who have access to donor advisors who help them think about the most strategic places to put their money, both in candidates and in nonprofit organizations. And we wanted to think about how we would give a similar experience to young donors or just donors who don't have the access to donor advisors. And so through that tool, we really stored all of our knowledge for federal candidates, key federal races, and over 550 grassroots organizations from 43 states across the country. That is an opportunity for us to experiment with that. But what we think is important through that tool is that people are giving to the candidates who most match their interests. So the candidates who fit the demographics that they want to serve, the issue areas that they want to serve, the geographic areas that they want to invest in. Because the first step to becoming a habitual political giver is just feeling inspired to give in the first place and feeling a connection to people who they're giving to. And so our events inspire people through their stories. The tool inspires people, hopefully, through the pragmatic approach that it takes towards political giving. Yeah. I mean, I played around with it a little and I'll just give it a little plug because I thought it was very well designed and you get to pick sort of what kind of organization. I mean, the structure, you get to pick what states or do you just want swing states? What issues are they focused on? I thought it worked great. And it came up with a lot of interesting organizations I wouldn't have known about otherwise. Had great colleagues, Dan Schlosser and Mackenzie Burnett, who really helped build that out in a brilliant way. And I think it's something that we're experimented with a bit this cycle and are excited to build upon and future cycles too. Well, well done to those guys. So I just want to talk a bit about your contemporaries, the millennials slash Gen Zs, just to get your thoughts on how you guys are voting and what you're looking at. Because I think despite the general disaster that our country is today, many people think that, or I guess your generation has a reputation for still being pretty disengaged politically. Would you agree with that or not? I know that research suggests that our generation is actually as involved civically as any generation prior. I think what people question is our voting habits. And if you look at it in 2018, actually, we had the highest midterm voter turnout in modern history. That was driven by young people. What I find problematic in this young voter space is that older folks take young voters for granted. Every cycle, It's like, how do we get young people out to vote? But yet after you get us out to vote, if you even get us out to vote to begin with, no one's engaging with young people. No one's making sure that young people's interests are served. I mean, look at the skyrocketing cost of higher education as a perfect example of that. Look at the fact that young people are dying from gun violence in schools and at concerts across the country. Look at the fact that our environment is falling apart around us. Young people do not feel listened to. And Max Rose is actually the perfect person who put this perfectly. He said, we don't need to get out the vote. We need to earn the vote. And so we have not historically invested in earning the vote with young people. In fact, between 2008 and 2014, conservatives spent $500 million more or three times as much as liberal donors did in youth organizations. Now, is money everything? Absolutely not. But does that tell you who's investing in the future and who's not? Absolutely. And I'd say that young people want to be engaged. They want to feel heard. And yet we are, as I said earlier, all taken for granted as a voting block. I expect young people to turn out in this cycle as much as ever because people are fed up with our current circumstances. But if we turn out as much as ever before, that doesn't mean that that's going to sustain itself. When we turn out, if we turn out this cycle, we turn out with the expectation as young people that our voices are going to be heard 
in the government that is elected to represent us. Speaking of that, I mean, I've heard also that many young people are lukewarm about Biden. Do you think they're going to show up and vote for him in November? And is there anything you guys are doing at the next 50 to sort of generate enthusiasm or get out the vote? I think that the best way to generate enthusiasm and get out the vote is recognizing that in an environment like the one we're in with COVID, where the presidential nominee cannot travel the country, it's investing in and supporting these young down-ballot candidates who are essentially the surrogates for the Democratic Party in those districts. These young candidates who are representative of or actually are of our generation in those communities. That's what's going to inspire us forward. I also believe that young people are starting to recognize with the Biden campaign's connection to an uplifting of the voices of a variety of the presidential campaigns that they already supported, whether it be the policy task force with Bernie Sanders and his campaign, or the uplift of Elizabeth Warren's policies, or Pete Buttigieg hosting these young professionals fundraisers, or Kamala Harris doing the same with the vice president or the presidential nominee, that the campaign is investing in making sure that young people feel like their values are going to be heard in this administration. Does that mean that the vice president is the most exciting and inspiring person to our generation? Perhaps not. But do young people also understand what's at stake in this election? Absolutely. And I mean, we have already seen it with the record turnouts in the primaries in states like Georgia and Kentucky. And I wholeheartedly expect that that will translate to the November elections, as long as we continue to engage with young people and uplift their voices throughout the electoral process. I love how you're thinking. What inspires you most about the work you're doing at The Next 50? I love to see in each of the young donors that we have in our network, I love seeing the fact that they're going to grow their engagement over the next 50 years. I love seeing that the person who's giving $25 now is going to build a long-term relationship in our political movement. And I equally love the fact that the young candidates that we're investing in now are going to be leaders of our country 50 years from now, if not sooner. To me, that is so extraordinarily exciting, incredibly exciting. The idea that we're building the future or a part of building the future of American politics. I love that. I love seeing these people every day and knowing that some of these folks are going to be wildly influential in the future of our country and that we're meeting them now. There's nothing cooler than like meeting Barack Obama before he becomes President Barack Obama. And whether or not that one of these people is the next president or the next chief of staff, the fact that they're going to be a part of shaping this country and that we're playing a role in shaping that gives me energy every day. It's what keeps me up late at night and makes me wake up early in the morning. Okay, so if people want to learn more or support The Next 50, what should they do? So they can go to thenext50.us or they can go to my Substack, my blog. I have a weekly newsletter that goes out on Thursdays. So it is at zachmalamid.substack.com. And there you'll be able to follow along on all the work that we're doing, the events that we're hosting, and get a little bit of insight into our political analysis on a weekly basis. Wow, that's great. I will put that in the notes. And this was fantastic. Zach Malamed, I really can't thank you enough for joining me at New Faces of Democracy. You're doing incredible work. And I'm so excited to see where the next 50 goes over the next 50. So thank you. No, thank you. And thank you for uplifting these new faces of democracy. It's so exciting to listen and learn from the work that you're doing and appreciate you uplifting the next 50 this week. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.